Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Wednesday, the 31st of March, 2021. News. Deeply concerning, Glasgow equal pay time bomb remains unresolved. This article is by Martin Williams. Glasgow City Council has come under fire for stalling in a bid to end chronic sex discrimination by delaying settling of up to 18,000 equal pay claims. The union-led Glasgow Equal Pay Joint Claimant Group is calling for what it called leadership intervention, warning that the unresolved dispute will cost the local authority a further £100 million a year. The outstanding equal pay liability is estimated at £320 million and the group has now called on council leader Susan Aitken to intervene over what it called failing job evaluation and refusal to engage in agreed settlement talks. It comes nine months after the council was praised by a regulator for their progress in settling the equal pay dispute. The Scottish Accounts Commission said that dealing with the claims has been the most significant development with more than 98% of cases partially settled at a total cost of £505 million. In a letter to Ms Aitken, claimant representatives expressed concerns over the failure of officials to meet with them to progress negotiations for the Council's Replacement Job Evaluation Scheme, which was set for March 31, 2021, leaving in place the current discriminatory scheme. They said that also delays the settlement of up to 18,000 equal pay claims. The group said that as part of the 2019 settlement process, which delivered over £500 million in equal pay awards, the joint claimant group agreed to suspend legal proceedings with the Council to focus on a negotiated replacement of the job evaluation scheme. The group said Council officials indicated a delay of 10 months for the completion of a new job evaluation scheme but trade union claimant representatives believe unless there is intervention and support for additional resources, this will not be completed before April 2023 and are calling on Ms Aitken to act. GMB Scotland Secretary Gary Smith said, Glasgow's outstanding equal pay liability is an estimated £320 million and will increase by £100 million a year for every year it continues to remain unresolved. It's a time bomb for the city and its finances. 
That's why we are urging Councillor Aitken to personally intervene now so we can kickstart the process of ending the chronic sex discrimination of working women in Glasgow City Council. The gulf between the council officials and the elected leadership is growing again. The failure of officials to meet with the joint claimant group to progress the replacement of the discriminatory job evaluation scheme and settle these residual claims is deeply concerning. The aim was to complete the new job evaluation scheme now. At the very least, it should be well down the road and we should be working towards the delivery of settling all outstanding equal pay claims. But instead, the liabilities are growing along with the burden on the city. Left unchallenged, not only is the council stalling on tackling discrimination and the delivery of justice, but with each passing day, its ability to resolve this scandal on its own diminishes as the liability grows. The City Council has been approached for comment. This article is by Martin Williams. The Herald, Wednesday the 31st of March 2021. News. European Medicines Agency. No evidence to support restricting use of Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. This article is by Stephen McElkenny. There is no evidence to support restricting the use of the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine in any population. European Medicines Agency EMA Executive Director Emer Cook has said. The EMA said a causal link between unusual blood clots in people who have had the vaccine is not proven but is possible, adding that the benefits of the vaccine in preventing COVID-19 outweighed the risks of side effects. It comes after it emerged Germany was suspending use of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine for people aged under 60 due to fears of a link with rare blood clots. The EMA said it was meeting on Wednesday in the context of its ongoing review of very rare cases of unusual blood clots associated with low numbers of platelets in people who have also had the AstraZeneca vaccine. The regulator said that at present the review has not identified any specific risk factors such as age, gender or a previous medical history of clotting disorders for these very rare events. Speaking at a press briefing, EMA Executive Director Emer Cook said, according to the current scientific knowledge, there is no evidence that would support restricting the use of the vaccine in any population. Ms Cook said 62 cases of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis CVST have been reviewed out of 9.2 million people in the European Economic Area, EEA. The EMA said a causal link with the vaccine is not proven but is possible and further analysis is continuing. As communicated on March the 18th, EMA is of the view that the benefits of the AstraZeneca vaccine in preventing COVID-19 
with its associated risk of hospitalisation and death outweigh the risks of side effects. Ms Cook was asked if a link between the rare cases of blood clots and the vaccine is likely and she said at the moment at this stage of our investigations the link is possible and we cannot say any more than that at this point. The EMA said vaccinated people should be aware of the remote possibility of these very rare types of blood clots occurring, adding if they have symptoms suggestive of clotting problems, as described in the product information, they should seek immediate medical attention and inform healthcare professionals of their recent vaccination. The EMA said it would provide any further updates during its meeting from April the 6th to the 9th. It comes as the German medicines regulator reported 31 cases of a type of rare brain blood clot among the nearly 2.7 million people who received the AstraZeneca jab in the country. There have been moves in several German regions, including the capital Berlin, to stop using the vaccine in younger people. Nine of the 31 people suffering clots have died and all but two of the cases involved women who were aged 20 to 63. Germany's Paul Ehrlich Institute said the two men were aged 36 and 57. Ms Cook said the 62 figure was mentioned includes a significant number of the German cases, but not all of them. The Concerns Centre on CVST blood clots, which stop blood draining from the brain properly, asked if there was a need to look again at AstraZeneca's vaccine. Community Secretary Robert Jenrick told Sky News, No, we don't. We're 100% confident in the efficacy of the vaccine that's borne out by study after study, by our own independent world-class regulators and by recent research, for example, by Public Health England's that's shown that thousands of people's lives have been saved since the start of this year alone, thanks to our vaccine programme. People should continue to go forward, get the vaccine, I certainly will when my time comes. It is a safe vaccine and the UK's vaccine rollout is saving people's lives right across the country every day. While a definitive link cannot be ruled out, senior regulators have said the benefits of having the vaccine far outweigh any potential risks and have declared it safe and effective. This view is echoed by the World Health Organization which has urged countries to continue using the jab. The European Union's medicines agency has approved three new production sites for coronavirus vaccines in a bid to boost the continent's supply of shots. It comes after weeks of delays and shortages across the continent. This article is by Stephen McElkenny. The Herald, Wednesday the 31st of March 2021 news. Scottish independence. Scotland faces hard border with England and a 10-year wait for EU. This article is by Caitlin Hutchison. 
Scotland and England could end up with a hard border for the first time in three centuries if an independent Scotland were to join the European Union, according to a report published today. The report from the Institute of Government, IFG, analysed the implications of Scotland rejoining the EU after gaining independence, but warned the process could take 10 years. It also said Scotland would become a customs and regulatory border for the EU, meaning the border between Scotland and England would need to be closed. The report reads, joining the EU would mean Scotland joining the single market and customs union, and as a result, the Anglo-Scottish border would become a new external customs and regulatory frontier for the EU. Even a looser model of integration with the EU, such as Scotland joining the European Economic Area, EEA, could not grant frictionless access to both the EU and the UK markets, so long as the UK-EU relationship continues to be governed by the UK-EU Trade and Cooperation Agreement. It went on. The process of Scotland's separation from the UK could easily last longer than the five years it took for the UK to exit the EU and the EU accession process would likely last at least two further years. However, the report added that it seemed more probable that Scotland could avoid any commitment, even in principle, to joining the Schengen area within which there are no border checks. The UK and the Republic of Ireland previously opted out of the Schengen area but maintained the existing common travel area that allows free movement between the UK, Ireland, the Channel Islands and the Isle of Man. Akash Pon, a senior fellow at the Institute and co-author of the report, said Scotland was taken out of the EU against the will of a majority of its citizens so it is understandable that many voters want the opportunity to vote again on independence so that Scotland could then rejoin the EU. That is a choice for Scotland to make, but it should make that choice in the knowledge that it will not be able to maintain open borders with both the EU and with the rest of the UK. Last night's televised debate between Scotland's political leaders was dominated by talk of a second independence referendum. As Scotland looks to move on from the coronavirus pandemic, Ms Sturgeon promised to be an experienced hand at the wheel, with her SNP party bringing forward bold policies to drive our recovery. But she insisted that when the crisis had passed, people should have a choice on independence. She added, Scots needed to get ourselves back into the European single market so that we can trade across Europe freely again, which of course is seven times the size of the UK market. The SNP wants that vote to take place in the first half of Scottish Parliament's five-year term. However, Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross insisted We can't have a recovery and a referendum. Pamela Nash, Chief Executive of Scotland in Union, said the move could lead to significant impacts on the job market. She said the reality of leaving the UK is scrapping the pound 
and building a hard border with our main trading partner, with devastating consequences for jobs. It would also mean a border between friends and families. We are stronger together as part of the UK, ensuring we can work together to build a successful future for every community as we recover from COVID. SNP Europe Minister Jenny Gilruth said it was the UK government putting up borders due to its Brexit policy, but added there is no reason an independent Scotland would not remain in the common travel area. She added the EU's founding values such as democracy, equality, freedom and the rule of law are Scotland's values and we are keen to make our contribution to the shared endeavour that the EU represents. This article is by Caitlin Hutchison. The Herald's Tuesday the 6th of April 2021 News Edinburgh Severinos Portobello Pizza Restaurant Revealed This article is by Brian Donnelly. Severinos, the pizza business, is officially opening its latest venture on the promenade at Portobello Beach in Edinburgh. The premises, opening on April 12th, is called Prom Slice. Opening a slice bar in the new location has always been a dream for the owner, Michel Sevierra, and his family as it is situated in their hometown of Portobello. This will be the fifth opening for Severinos in the city following its recent slice bar in Kostorfin called West Slice. There will be a slice window for takeaway and space indoors for 20 with an outdoor seating area which will feature up to 50 deck chairs overlooking the sea with plans to expand their outdoor area. Severinos will donate initially up to 50 deck chairs which were originally a main feature on Portobello Beach many years ago. They will be rented out to customers and locals alike, with all proceeds going to local Portobello charities such as the Toddler Hut, Beach Wheelchairs and Edinburgh's Dog and Cat Home. The new menu will see a lot of firm favourites for their loyal pizza fans, with a few new specials and creations especially for Portobello. Renowned chef Tom Kitchen is designing an exclusive pizza for the opening week with all proceeds going to a local charity. Prom Slice will open in the morning for smoothies and breakfast with all day pizza through to late night offering pizza with the plan to have deck chairs overlooking the beach to enjoy the sunset with frozen margaritas. At Prom Slice, Severino's plan to continue to collaborate with other local independent businesses to support each other during these times. More recently, it has teamed up with the Smiddy Barbecue, Chop House, Mothership and King of Feasts. It has also been working closely with the local food bank to help underprivileged families in local schools, offering them complimentary DIY pizza kits to enjoy at home with their family which is something that they want to continue to do. It plans to offer local school children £1 pizza slices during term time from their new location on the promenade. Owner Michelle Sevieria 
said, I have always dreamt of opening in Portobello since I moved here seven years ago with my family. I just wanted somewhere to take the kids in the evening for pizza on the beach. When this opportunity came up, it was the perfect location and fit for us. You can sit and look out to see and enjoy an evening pizza with the whole family on the prom. It makes it extra special that it is in my neighbourhood, which has always been a dream, but something I think is also needed. I can't wait for everyone to see it and what we have in store. The family-run business has spent the last year completely reinventing their business model with their DIY pizza kits, which were the first to launch and deliver throughout Scotland at the start of the first lockdown. It has also been working closely with the NHS to deliver pizza directly to them for free and offer all NHS workers and emergency services discount and a pay it forward scheme for their families and loved ones throughout the pandemic. Severinos Food Club is one of a kind in the city and well known for their Italian street food, New York style wood fired pizzas and secret classic family recipes passed down through generations. This article is by Brian Donnelly. The Herald, Tuesday the 6th of April 2021. News. Government's holiday traffic light system will only reopen foreign travel for people who can afford it. This article is by Martin Williams. The boss of EasyJet has warned that requiring holiday makers returning from low-risk countries to pay for two coronavirus tests will only reopen international travel for people who can afford it. Chief Executive Johan Lundgren claimed passengers should not face more complexities and cost for visiting green destinations. His comments were supported by the consumer organisation WITCH, which said that the government needs to urgently look at curing the costs of private tests. On Monday, the government unveiled the outline of a traffic light system for enabling overseas leisure travel to resume as part of the easing of coronavirus restrictions. Assessments will be based on a range of factors, including the proportion of a country's population which has been vaccinated, rates of infection, emerging new variants and the country's access to reliable scientific data and genomic sequencing. Travellers returning from countries rated green will not be required to self-isolate, although pre-departure and post-arrival tests will still be needed. The Scottish Government, which has said that where possible it will adopt a Four Nations approach, has devolved responsibility for borders and has still to decide on whether to adopt the system. Mr Lundgren warned it should not be needed to put any more complexities and cost in order to travel to and from those destinations. He said PCR tests are way over and above what the cost is of an average EasyJet fare. If travellers are forced to pay for those tests, 
then you wouldn't open up international travel for everyone. You would open up an international travel for people who can afford it, Mr Lundgren claimed. He went on, I don't think that is fair. I don't think it's right. And I don't think it is necessarily established from a medical and scientific point of view that is the right thing to do. If they choose, however, to go down that route to have the tests in place, it should be the same type of testing, the lateral flow testing, which is much cheaper, more accessible, that is being used to open up the domestic sector as an example. Rory Bolland, editor of Witch Travel, said testing will be essential for restarting travel safely, but private tests in the UK are currently too expensive and risk pricing most people out of travel. Other countries have found solutions to reduce the cost of private testing, so if the government is serious about making travel safe and affordable when it restarts, it must urgently look at ways to reduce these expenses. This article is by Martin Williams. The Herald, Tuesday the 6th of April 2021. News. Rural Affairs Needs a Louder Voice in the Holyrood Poll. This article is by Claire Taylor. Support for Rural Scotland should be for life, not just the length of a campaign trail. But my past experience covering elections would beg to differ. I say this rather facetiously, as there are of course some politicians who do fantastic work representing rural areas, but queue election time and suddenly the hordes appear out of the woodwork to lend an empathetic ear to rural communities, despite having spent the majority of their political career pursuing an urban agenda. This has not been lost on countryside workers, who recently united in their thousands via an online protest to seek a new politics in a future government, one which values and supports traditional rural sectors. Gamekeepers, shepherds, fishing gillies, deer managers, anglers, farmers, foresters, rural vets, falconers and others align their voices to demand a level playing field when it comes to rural policy decisions and urged for the future Scottish Government to establish a cross-party group to hear their concerns firsthand. The feeling amongst rural workers is that serious change is needed within Holyrood to greater represent the breadth and diversity of voices across the entire country. The coordinator of Scotland's Moorland Groups said There is a growing disquiet on river and land. People have been pushed far enough. They want a type of politics which reflects the rich role they play in Scottish life. In recent years, the Scottish Government has often chosen to listen to the opinions of a vocal minority who are not themselves embedded in the fabric of rural life over that of experts who themselves live and breathe the land day in, day out. To focus on one such example is the growing obsession with rewilding Scotland, 
Only last month, a number of MSPs pledged their support for a parliamentary motion which would seek to establish Scotland as the world's first rewilding nation, a sexy headline intended to impress at the upcoming COP26 in Glasgow. But it is important to learn from past experiences before such a notion is considered. Farmers and crofters in the west of Scotland have been plagued by the reintroduction of white-tailed eagles back in the 1970s and their subsequent rapid expansion. 130 pairs were recorded in 2017, but this figure is forecast to rise to 900 pairs by 2040. These magnificent but deadly birds have a wingspan of up to 2.5 metres and sit at the top of the food chain, raining havoc as they predate on sheep flocks along the west coast, threatening the viability of many hill farms. Despite years of thorough evidence from farmers and crofters demonstrating the destruction of these birds, and an acknowledgement by Nature Scott that they are killing healthy live lambs, the carnage continues, the birds go unmanaged, and many feel their concerns fall on deaf ears. I have been covering this issue for the past three years, and in that time there has been little change to the heartbreaking stories I hear from the farmers and crofters who are left to deal with the aftermath of these horrific attacks knowing fine well that they are fighting a losing battle. One where the government's desire to increase tourism numbers on the off chance of a bird sighting takes precedence over safeguarding the livelihoods of farming businesses which are choosing to close up shop under the mounting stress. What next? Will we toy yet again with the idea of reintroducing links and maybe down the line throw wolves into the mix? We should listen to our friends in Norway, who in 2017 paid out compensation on 20,000 sheep lost to predators. Wolverine accounted for around 34% of losses, with lynx, bears and wolves accounting for 21%, 15% and 9% respectively. I was told by a farmer that 1,000 hill farmers in Norway had given up due to predation pressures in the last 10 years and to reintroduce predators over here would be an absolute catastrophe. Farmers and crofters are often the lifeline of economically fragile rural communities but with added pressures to farming life such as white-tailed eagle predation Our hills are being cleared of livestock and replaced by Scottish Government-backed forestry initiatives. It is not only Scotland's hills which are at risk of depleting rural activity, but if the Scottish Greens have their way, they will seek an end to Scotland's grouse moors. It is no secret that many members of the public aren't supportive of grouse shooting, But what is lesser known are the benefits that grouse moors bring to rural areas through local employment and investment in fragile communities, but also a host of biodiversity benefits. 
the grouse shooting season runs from August the 12th to December the 10th, but throughout the entire year, grouse moor keepers play an active role in the conservation of local wildlife and supporting carbon capture and storage by careful management of muir burn and peat reserves. Many are taking active steps to reserve the decline of wading birds. According to a recent Scottish Greens election flyer, 3,000 people would lose their jobs in the process of phasing out grouse moors, but they have offered vague assurances that this would be justified as new rural jobs would be created in their place. I'm sure that will soften the blow to the individuals and their families who would be facing redundancy. The recent rural workers' protest is an accumulation of years of frustration. A future Scottish Government must ensure rural Scotland is at the heart of policy decisions and stamp out the vilifying of individuals who have dedicated their lives to managing our land, local wildlife and rural cultural heritage. Claire Taylor is the Scottish Farmers Political Affairs Editor. This article is by Claire Taylor. The Herald, Tuesday the 6th of April 2021. News. Top Nicola Sturgeon aide backs Alex Salmon's Alba party. This article is by Tom Gordon. One of Nicola Sturgeon's most trusted former advisers has backed voting for Alex Salmon's new Alba party. Noel Dolan, Ms Sturgeon's senior special advisor and policy guru, while she was deputy first minister, said it would improve the odds of a pro-independence Holyrood. The endorsement comes in spite of the first minister accusing list-only Alba of trying to game the Holyrood electoral system and asking people to give both their votes to the SNP. Mr Salmond, who is due to set out a route map to independence this afternoon, says Alba can mop up list votes that would otherwise be wasted if they went to the SNP, given their strength in constituencies makes it harder for them to get top-up MSPs. The former FM has said a combination of SNP and Alaba MSPs would create a supermajority for independence at Holyrood, putting pressure on Boris Johnson to concede a second referendum or legitimise street demonstrations for IndyRef2. Mr Dolan told the Daily Record, I'm voting for what I regard as the best opportunity for getting a second independence referendum or moving towards independence. On the basis of the way on which the system works, it would be sensible, if you favour independence, to vote for the SNP in the constituency vote and Alaba on the second vote. He also said... There was a very strong probability Alaba would take seats off unionist parties, adding the probability of an independent supporting majority is increased by voting Alaba. Mr Dolan and Ms Sturgeon were almost inseparable at Holyrood for many years 
and were regularly seen deep in conversation in the garden lobby coffee shop and canteen. However, they have diverged more recently over the Salmond affair, with Mr Dolan saying the government's top civil servant should have lost her job over the saga. Speaking ahead of his campaign event, Mr Salmond said, On week one of the Scottish Parliament elected with an independent supermajority, the Scottish Government should seek an instruction from the Parliament to begin independence negotiations with the Westminster Government. However, for that to happen, people need to vote Alaba on the list to deliver that independence supermajority and to allow those negotiations to begin. What will change Westminster's mind about engaging in negotiations is the strength of the votes in Scotland and the knowledge that they are not taking on a single party, the SNP, but a parliament representing an entire nation. This article is by Tom Gordon. Recorded from the Herald on the 31st of March 2021. From the Sports Section. David Turnbull using international break to prepare for Scottish Cup defence by Mark Hendry. David Turnbull is using the international break to prepare for Celtic's Scottish Cup clash with Falkirk. The midfielder was expected to be in Steve Clark's Scotland squad for World Cup qualifiers against Austria, Israel and Faroe Islands, but was left out by the head coach. That hasn't stopped him from working hard this week with the Bairns next in line to face the hoops at Parkhead this weekend. Turnbull insists he and the players left at the Lennox Town have been put in in a shift to keep themselves ticking over while teammates play competitive football. And he's ready to go. It's been a great week, the 21-year-old told the club website. There are a few boys missing because of the international fixtures, but a few young boys have been training with us, which has helped, so the training has been good and high intensity. It's been brilliant, really. I've enjoyed every minute of it. You can't drop your standards when the other boys are away. You need to keep working hard, look forward to the next game, and train the way you want to play. We've been focusing on ourselves so far in terms of how we're going to build up and use the possession. As more boys come back during the week, we'll start working towards the game even more. Celtic may have lost the Premiership title to rivals Rangers, but Turnbull has no intention of surrendering their Scottish Cup crown. John Kennedy's men began their defence of the trophy after beating Hearts in last season's final at Hampden, and the midfielder is desperate to retain. Starting from this weekend, we need to go out and perform 100%, and I'm sure that'll take us a long way, he added. We can't show any complacency. You're only as good as your last game, and we don't know how good Falkirk are going to be. We just need to focus on our own game, go out and get a result. My confidence is high at the minute. I just want to keep creating and scoring as many goals as I can, help the team out and show the fans what I can do. Since I've started playing, even at Motherwell, I wanted to base my games on goals. A goal-scoring midfielder can be hard to come by, so I'm just trying to add to that to my game every week. Wherever I'm put in, whether it's a 10-roll deeper or out wide, I enjoy doing it. This article was by Mark Hendry. Recorded from the Herald on the 31st of March 2021, from the Sports Section. Rangers captain James James Tavernier in call for action after Scottish FA Racism Summit by Christopher Jack. James Tavernier has called for a united and concerted effort 
from all stakeholders in society and football to help eradicate the issue of racism following a Scottish FA summit on Wednesday. Tavernier represented Rangers in his role as captain as players and officials from the Premiership clubs came together in the wake of the rise of incidents of racism over the course of the campaign. Glenn Kamara has claimed that he was called a monkey by defender Odrej Kudela during Rangers Europa League clash with Slavia Prague earlier this month and striker Kemar Roof was the subject of racist abuse on social media after the last 16 fixture. The Czech side have denied the accusations of racism and vowed to defend their player whilst making claims that Kudela was assaulted post-match as they vowed to cooperate with UEFA and Police Scotland investigations. Rangers and Kamara have received widespread support in recent days, and Celtic captain Scott Brown would embrace the Finnish internationalist ahead of the old firm fixture at Parkhead a fortnight ago. UEFA have yet to decide what punishment, if any, will be handed out to Candela as the fallout continues, but Tavernier is pleased to see the Scottish clubs come together and present a united front. Tavernier said, This was a very useful exercise and it was pleasing to be able to air my views to the rest of the clubs in the SPFL as well as the SFA. Every black player in our squad has been the victim of racist abuse this season, either online or in the case of Glenn Kamara, on the field of play. This is unacceptable and must stop. It is vital that football authorities, clubs, government bodies and social media companies work together to educate and empower to ultimately eradicate hatred from our game and society in general. We are keen to continue to engage but highlighted that we need to see clear outcomes from discussions rather than simply ticking a box. This article was by Christopher Jack. Recorded from the Herald on the 1st of April 2021. From the Sports Section. Rangers keeper Alan McGregor signs new Ibrox deal by Christopher Jack. Rangers keeper Alan McGregor has agreed an extension to his Ibrox contract until the summer of 2022. The former Scotland international has been a standout performer for Stephen Gerrard's side once again this term, and he has now put pen to paper on a deal that will keep him between the sticks as Rangers defend their Premiership title next season. McGregor said, I didn't really need convincing. It was more that my body felt okay and performances seemed okay, so why not? You get to love the place and you feel like it is your home. You know everybody that works here, not that I didn't to other places, but I just feel like it is my home and there is no other way to describe it. That article was by Christopher Jack. Recorded from the Herald on the 1st of April 2021, from the sports section, St Johnson boss Callum Davidson named Scottish Premiership Manager of the Month by Aidan Smith. St Johnson manager Callum Davidson has been announced as the Scottish Premiership Manager of the Month for March. The Perth boss, who picks up his first Manager of the Month award for the 2020-2021 season, led St Johnson on an impressive charge to secure a top six position in the Scottish Premiership after winning the Betfred Cup at the end of February. The Perth side enjoyed league victories over Hibs and Ross County and an away draw with Hamilton at the beginning of the month. After receiving his award, Davidson said, I'm absolutely delighted to win the SPFL Premiership Manager of the Month award. I'm very proud. Credit to my backroom staff and the players for their efforts all season, but we have been particularly strong since the turn of the year. 
I appreciate all their efforts and the efforts of everyone at the football club. Our aim now is to push on and have a strong finish to the domestic season as we still have plenty to play for. Colin Matthews, CEO of the award sponsors Glenn Wodka said, Following St Johnson's deserved victory in the Betfred Cup final, the side has gone on to establish its position in the top six, making Callum Davidson a more than worthy winner of the Scottish Premiership's Glens Manager of the Month award for March. My congratulations to him, his colleagues and his squad on the achievement. That article was by Aidan Smith. Thursday, the 1st of April, 2021, the Glasgow Times Lifestyle Section. The tale behind one of Glasgow's least known statue figures. The greatest collection of statues and monuments in a public space in Scotland is to be found in Glasgow's George Square at the heart of the city. Yes, there are many monuments and not a few statues in cemeteries such as the Necropolis in Glasgow and Greyfriars Kirkyard and Old Calton in Edinburgh, while Prince's Street Gardens has more memorials and statues, but nowhere in Scotland rivals George Square for the magnificence of its statuary in such a relatively small public space. The square itself was named after King George III and was deliberately laid out over 20 years from 1781, so at the start of the 19th century it came to be a functioning civic space, similar to the piazzas in many towns and cities of Italy. Soon I will be examining how the central placing of the square influenced the construction of how much of what became the city centre and in many ways it can be argued that George Square built Glasgow in the 1800s. Most of the statues and monuments date from the 19th century. Towering high over the rest is the 80 foot column in the centre that celebrates Sir Walter Scott while two other literary figures have statues in their honour, Robert Burns and Thomas Campbell, described on the plinth of his statue simply as poet. Both Scott and Burns knew Glasgow well. I told last week the extraordinarily lost story of how Burns failed to do a deal with printers in Glasgow, otherwise the world-famous Kilmarnock edition of his poems would have been the Glasgow edition. Indeed, it should have been so, for the greatest number of subscribers were from the city, and more first Kilmarnock editions are preserved in Glasgow than anywhere else. From the moment he found fame with the Kilmarnock edition in July 1786, until his tragically premature death in 1796, Burns made several visits to Glasgow. He was also a friend of an important Glaswegian, Charles Tennant, who learned weaving and then turned his attention to bleaching, building the huge St Rolux works. Burns described him as Wabster Charlie in his epistle to James Tennant. Burns had many other friends in Glasgow, and being rabbi, not a few of them were women. Indeed, his most famous paramount, Clarinda, 
was a Glasgow girl, Agnes McLehos Craig, for whom he wrote A Fond Kiss in one of her letters to Burns, preserved and then sold by her impecunious son. She writes, Will you take the trouble to pick up a small parcel left for me at Dunlop and Wilson, the booksellers of Trongate, Glasgow, and bring it with you on the fly? One day in Ayrshire, Burns saw a very pretty girl, Wilhelmina Alexander from Glasgow, and wrote her into immortality as the bonnie lass of Bally, Bally Mill. She ignored the love letter from Burns to her that contained the poem, and she died a spinster at the age of 90, though Wilhelmina always kept the letter and poem to prove that she was indeed the bonnie lass of Ballymill. Other Glasgow connections saw him visit the city to visit friends, and from Robert Mickendo, the draper, he bought the beautiful dark material for Jean's armour's wedding dress. It cost him four pounds, six shillings and nine pence. After his death, Burns was finally published in Glasgow with The Jolly Beggars printed in 1799 by Stuart and Mickle of Riggs. His statue in George Square was paid for by public subscription and since no other description was needed, it states just his name. So Walter Scott only met Burns once in Scenes Hill House in Edinburgh when Scott was just 15. Scott recalled many years later, There was a strong expression of sense and shrewdness in all his lineaments. The eye alone, I think, indicated the poetical temperament. It was large and of a dark cast, and glowed, I say literally glowed, when he spoke with feeling or interest. I never saw such another eye in a human head, though I have seen the most distinguished men in my time. Scott was himself a frequent visitor to Glasgow in connection with his legal business, often attending the old courthouse on Jail Square, now Jocelyn Square, and staying at an inn on King Street just around the corner. Evidence that he knew Glasgow well can be found in his novel Rob Roy, in which the actual locations of events are easily recognised. Bailey Nicol Jarvie, one of Scott's most memorable characters, is based on an amalgam of people he met in Glasgow and elsewhere. Which brings me to Thomas Campbell, inset. No doubt many thousands of people have trooped round George Square and come to the statue of Thomas Campbell, poet born 1777, died 1844 and asked themselves the question, who is he? For Campbell is probably the least known person commemorated in the square, save probably Thomas Graham, the chemist. Yet in his heyday in the final years of the 18th century and first years of the 1800s, Thomas Campbell was very famous indeed, enjoying the sort of renown in his early 20s that would only come to Scott in his thirties. 
the son of a tobacco lord who survived near bankruptcy during the American Wars of Independence, Campbell was educated at Glasgow High School and the university and was composing poetry even before he graduated. He studied law at Glasgow at Edinburgh University and moved in social circles in the capital where Scott was a contemporary. Scott encouraged Campbell to publish his poetry and in 1799 his long poem The Pleasures of Hope was printed. It's too didactic for our modern tastes but in his first year alone it went into four editions and Campbell found himself famous. Moving abroad and later to London, he also produced several stirring patriotic war songs, such as Ye Mariners of England, The Soldier's Dream. Hohen Linden and in 1801, The Battle of the Baltic, which was a huge success. Sadly, Campbell gradually lost his poetic muse and devoted himself to such activities as helping found the University of London and editing the works of other poets rather than writing his own. He returned to his alma mater, Glasgow University, in 1826 when he elected Lord Rector, his defeated opponent in the election was none other than Sir Walter Scott. Buried in Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey, after his death at the age of 66, Campbell is mostly forgotten in Glasgow, but at least you know now the story behind the statue. Thursday the 1st of April 2021, the Glasgow Times Lifestyle Section Review by Stacey Mullen Review of Rice Bowl in Glasgow we taste their salt and chilli after Instagram hype. It sometimes feels like the salt and chilli phenomenon has taken over the cuisine on offer at Chinese takeaways in the city. We just can't get enough of that one-off taste. From munchy boxes to chips and even pizza, the unique spice blend has been tested on just about everything and we glance regions seem to love it. For that reason I am sure I am not alone in saying I am always searching for the best salt and chilli flavouring in Glasgow. So when I heard about rice bowl in the gobbles I couldn't wait to sample their version. The Chinese takeaway is situated in McNeil Street and caught my attention after it was championed by several Instagram influencers who flooded their own grids with appealing pictures of Rice Bowl's salt and chilli offering. I naturally followed Rice Bowl on the social media site and before I knew it I managed to track down their menu on the takeaway order ordering app Just Eat. When I had a look at their page on the app Naturally, I sampled the reviews, which were mainly glowing except for a few about long delivery times. Not wanting to take a chance on a huge wait time, I decided I would order my takeaway for collection. My rice bowl haul 
included mixed vegetable, vegetable chow mein, special garlic chilli, egg fried rice, curry sauce and prawn crackers. And of course, I ordered the salt and chilli, chips, ribs and spring rolls. I arrived around 5 minutes before my order was due for collection and checked in with staff who advised it would be another wee while. I patiently waited for that wee while, which was at least 20 minutes, and watched people turn up for their orders one after another, proving that rice bowl is clearly popular. Eventually, one of the staff advised me to sit in my car and she would bring my order, which I did. Now, usually, I get a wee bit raging when things don't arrive on time, but the girl came out and apologised, explaining it was an extremely busy night. How can I be mad at good customer service? Now for the food, the verdict. It was very tasty, especially the salt and chilli chips, which I couldn't get enough of. The portion sizes were generous and met my expectations. My only complaint was the rice, which I felt was a wee bit bland. I have had nicer elsewhere. It is usually my favourite part of a Chinese meal, but I left most of it. That said, I would definitely try Rice Bowl again, as the place clearly lives up to its Instagram appeal, and its salt and chilli flavouring, it's worth the hype. Where? Glasgow Gorbals. Type of food? Chinese. Price? £31.70. Just Eat Discount Code took order to £27.44. Prong crackers, £2. Curry sauce, £2.20. Salt and chilli spare ribs, £6.60. Special garlic chicken, £5.60. Salt and chilli mini spring vegetable rolls, £3.50. Egg fried rice, £2.20. Salt and chilli chips, £3.70. Mixed vegetable, vegetable chow mein, £5.90. Delivery time. Waited at least 20 minutes after collection time. From the Herald Scotland, dated Wednesday 31st March 2021. From the Voices section. Why Sturgeon needs to shut up about Salmond. An article by Ian McWhorter, columnist. Only Alex Salmond could dominate a debate by not being there. The candidates in the first virtual hustings on BBC TV last night tried to ignore the ghost at the feast. But it was hard. Not least because Nicola Sturgeon's position on her late mentor is a contradiction. The more she condemns Mr Salmond for his bad behaviour towards women, the more she condemns herself for having supported this man for decades and having worked her socks off to have him elected as First Minister and then leader of an independent Scotland. She probably saw more of him than his wife. Mr Salmond's response to the character issue has been show no tell. Alba's 32 strong candidates list today has a majority of women. It includes two leading feminist SNP defectors, 
Dumbarton councillor Caroline McAllister and North Lanarkshire councillor Lynn Anderson. They were recently elected as the SNP's Women's Convener and Equalities Convener, respectively. Any way you look at it, that is a remarkable coup. They were also signatories of the Women's Pledge on Sex-Based Rights. Mesturgeon's forthright promotion of trans self-ID may play well on Twitter, but many older feminists are profoundly opposed. Most voters find the idea of men becoming biologically female mystifying at best. The SNP is keen to keep this policy under wraps until after the election. Gender overlaps with an age-class divide that has opened up in the nationalist movement. Mr Salmon's appeal is very much to older working-class supporters of independence, rather than the managerialistic elite who dominate Ms Sturgeon's inner circle. Mr Salmond would have willingly led those massive independence marches in 2018. Ms Sturgeon preferred to march with middle-class Remainers in London, rather than the uncouth crowd in Edinburgh with their motorbikes and Wallace Kitch. At an Edinburgh Book Festival event, Ms Sturgeon even suggested changing the name of the SNP because she didn't like being tainted with the N-word. She hates being called a nationalist. Mr Salmond accepts it. It is what it is. He still accepts the recruitment of boxer Alex Arthur, who is a star in Scotland's housing estates, but only known on social media for his offensive remarks about Romanians. The SNP and many commentators have portrayed Mr Salmond as a right-wing Nigel Farage-style populist, leading a ragbag of racists and misfits. And truth be told, there is something of the Brexit party in Elba. It is a nationalist party that has come from nowhere and is built around the personality of an insurgent populist leader. The Brexit Party, remember, won the 2019 European elections. The big difference is that Mr Salmond remains avowedly pro-European. Mind you, Alba doesn't seem to have settled policy on Europe. It thinks Ms Sturgeon has failed to recognise that SNP policy is redundant post-Brexit. Since Britain left the EU, the SNP has tried to pretend that nothing has changed that the borderless 2014 prospectus still applies. Yet everything has, and Alba is right to call out this pretense. There will obviously be a hard border with England if and when Scotland leaves the UK and joins the European Union. More precisely, there will be a trade and regulatory divide since the pre-existing UK common travel area will mean passports and visas are unnecessary after independence. Alba sees this as an issue that has to be addressed. Though in opening this Pandora's box, Mr Salmon could end up with more than he bargained for. A lot of SNP supporters and Alba fellow travellers are distinctly unenthusiastic about rejoining the European Union and not just because of Ursula von der Leyen's threats to start a vaccine trades war. There has long been a Eurosceptic strand in the SNP. Many on the left favour the Norway option of joining the single market, but not the political institutions of Brussels. 
the SNP has tried to keep a lid on this debate too, but not for much longer. Mr Salmond has also called Nicola Sturgeon's bluff about a Scottish independence referendum being imminent, delivered by a new Section 30 order from Westminster. That is simply not going to happen. It is fanciful to believe that Boris Johnson is going to risk breaking up the UK just because the SNP wins a majority in Holyrood. He will simply keep saying that now is not the time for Indyref too, as Britain emerges from Brexit. Sir Keir Starmer will back him to the hilt. Mind you, there is equally no guarantee that Mr Johnson would recognise an SNP Alba supermajority. He might just echo Miss Sturgeon saying it is cheating. However, this argument that having a pro-independence party standing for list seats alone is somehow undemocratic, or gaming the system, as Miss Sturgeon puts it, is simply wrong. The Scottish Green Party is a pro-independence party, which is also standing only in list seats. As the Times reported earlier this month, the SNP leadership has been in discussions with Patrick Harvey about a formal Green SNP coalition, and even used the term supermajority to refer to their combined electoral strength. From the point of view of an ordinary SNP supporter, voting Alba for list seats is a no-lose proposition. Older working-class voters will likely see Alba as preferable to the woke Greens, whose policy on transgender issues is so controversial that their star MSP, Andy Whiteman, had to leave the party because he wasn't permitted to speak about it. At any rate, SNP voters will have to be given better reasons not to vote Alba than Mr Salmond is a bad man and that standing on the list is cheating. Miss Sturgeon may have forgotten, but only a few years ago, the Scottish National Party renamed itself Alex Salmond for First Minister on list ballot papers. This man is a huge part of SNP folk memory. The attempt to write him out of history, like a nationalist Trotsky, was never going to succeed. Rather than attacking him personally, Miss Sturgeon would be better advised to stay silent. Let the electoral system do its work and see what the voters deliver. After all, she is still vastly more popular among Scottish voters than Mr Salmond. That surely speaks for itself. An article by Emma Huerta. This is from the Herald Arts and Entertainment section, 5th of April. DMX, rapper in hospital after heart attack by Stephen McElkenny, digital editor. US rapper and actor DMX is in serious condition in hospital following a heart attack. The hip-hop icon, whose real name is Earl Simmons, was taken to hospital in White Plains, New York, late on Friday evening, according to his lawyer, Murray Richmond. In a statement, Richmond confirmed the 50-year-old rapper is surrounded by his family, saying he was on life support. He's been taken off life support. He is breathing on his own, but there is little brain activity. It would be disingenuous of me to suggest that I'm not a worried man at this particular point. The lawyer refused to confirm a TMZ report which claimed the heart attack was the result of an overdose. The Yonkers, New York-raised TMZ, was signed by Columbia Records in 1992 and has collaborated with Jay-Z, 
Ja Rule and LL Cool G, as well as acting in films including Romeo Must Die and Cradle to the Grave. He suffered bronchial asthma as a child and has admitted to previous health problems, including being addicted to crack cocaine. He was resuscitated and taken to hospital in February 2016 after being found unresponsive in a hotel parking lot in Yonkers, an incident he later said was due to an asthma attack. DMX's fans and family are planning to hold a prayer vigil outside his New York hospital. And that was from the Herald Arts and Entertainment section from the 5th of April. And this is from the Herald Arts and Entertainment section, 5th of April. Tracy Thorne on Lindy Morrison, The Go-Betweens and Writing Women Back Into the Story by Teddy Jameson, Senior Features Writer. Tracy Thorne first met Lindy Morrison backstage at the Lyceum Theatre in London on March the 31st, 1983. Thorne was only 20 then, still a student. The Marine Girls, the band she was in at the time, were supporting Orange Juice that night. I was terrified and out of my depth, Thorne recalls in the opening pages of her new book, My Rock and Roll Friend. Also on the bill that night was the Australian band The Go-Betweens, one of the most critically acclaimed bands of the decade, but one that would find success frustratingly elusive. As Thorne sat in the dressing room, the door opened and The Go-Betweens drummer Lindy Morrison walked in, asking to borrow some lipstick at the top of her voice. Older, noisier, more self-assured, Thorne was enthralled. You looked like confidence ran in your veins, she writes of that first encounter. She just seemed other, you know, Thorne says of Morrison, now in March 2021, nearly 40 years later. She was older than me, 11 years older. I think that's important. I was only 20. I was still at that stage of being right at the beginning of everything, not really knowing who I was, who I wanted to be. Embarking on this career of being in the music business, but not at all sure whether I wanted to or how I was going to do it. And there she is. She seems on the face of it to be my opposite, in that she seems supremely self-confident, supremely self-defined, to know exactly who she is, to not take any shit from anyone. When you're young and looking around for role models and examples of how to be, you seize upon people like that. It was to be the start of a friendship that would long outlast the bands the two women were members of back then. Some four decades later, it's led Thorne to write a book about her friend, the reason she is talking to me on Zoom from her home in London this afternoon. Thorne would go on to see huge success as part of everything but the girl. Morrison would stay in the go-betweens until 1989, when the brand broke up after their last chance album, Sixteen Lovers Lane, still didn't make them stars. Although their paths diverged in the intervening years, Thorne and Morrison, through ups and downs and through a world apart, remained in touch. My Rock and Roll Friend, then, is a story of friendship, but it's more than that. It's also a vehicle for Thorne to write Morrison back into the story of the go-betweens, a band whose narrative has been continuously refined and reduced to that of the two songwriters, Robert Forster and the late Grant McLennan. In doing so, Thorne also tackles the wider subject of female erasure in music, how men literally write women out of the story. The result is funny, candid and as the pages pass increasingly indignant. By the end you can feel the anger rising off the pages. It is also for those of us who grew up worshipping at the altar of Forster and McLennan something of a challenge. Have we as fans been just as guilty of that act of erasure? It may also be the best book Thorne has written. 
It certainly feels the most open, the most candid in a way, as if some of Morrison's energy and outspokenness has rubbed off on her friend on the page. I think that's true, Thorne acknowledges. I almost wanted to allow that to happen a bit. Let the spirit of Lindy animate the book. And so here is Thorne talking about desire and distress, about recent relationship struggles with Watt, about swimming naked in a spa in Covent Garden. In writing, as in life, Thorne has been emboldened through her friendship with Morrison. Morrison's own story goes like this. In Brisbane in the late 1970s, she was in her mid-twenties and in a female punk band called Zero when she met Robert Foster. He's some six years younger than her. His band, the Go-Betweens, are the antithesis of punk. But Morrison saw something in them, something in Foster, certainly. Soon they became a couple. And when Morrison joined the Go-Betweens as their drummer, the band became worthy of notice. She made them a band, Thorne suggests. They were fumbling along, two boys being a duo with these other members who came and went. They didn't have a band identity, and then suddenly they've got Lindy Morrison, who was already semi-famous in the relatively small music scene of Brisbane. That was an audacious act to get her to join them. It was a great thing to do. That was a strength that they should always have played up, really. As the years went by, the opposite happened. The band became defined by Foster and McLennan's wordplay. They were a band who were loved for their lyrics, but would either have managed to get anywhere without Morrison's drive, Thornass. Morrison adapted her playing to their songs. She didn't straighten them out, Thorne points out. They did have that sort of angularity about them. They didn't know how many bars they were writing. They just wrote how many bars it needed to get to the end of that line of lyric. A more prosaic drummer might have said, OK, you need to edit this a bit. We need to square it off. She said, well, let's go with it. Let the song have this curious length. And if you've written it like that, I'll play it like that. That gives the band a lot of character. There were constant tensions in the band, it should be said. Foster and Morrison eventually fell out, yet continued to play together. McLennan, meanwhile, never seemed to like Morrison. When Amanda Brown joined the band, she was McLennan's girlfriend, but she was also an ally for Morrison. What's very clear from the book is that when Morrison joined the band, she was the one with the life experience. It's also quickly clear that even sensitive young men with an interest in art and literature can be painfully conventional in their attitude towards women. That's often one of the frustrating things, I think, for women in the music scene or probably other worlds of art, Thorne suggests. You're drawn to those scenes for the same reason as men are, because you're looking for freedom and liberation from the straight world, and you're looking for expression and to shake off the conventions. And then, within the world of music, when you encounter the same narrow thinking, the same conventions, the same prejudices, the same stereotypes, it's intensely frustrating. And you encounter that in men you're working with, that you've been drawn to because you admire their creativity and artistry. It's a really frustrating thing. That played out in Morrison's encounters with male music journalists. She was too loud for them, too outspoken. She didn't fit with their idea of the band. Frankly, some of them were scared of her. After years of never quite making it, Foster and McLennan decided to go solo in 1989. Foster arranged to tell Morrison at exactly the same time as McLennan told Brown, a move that was both theatrical and spectacularly foolish as it turned out. The brutal display of where the power lies is how Thorne describes it in My Rock and Roll Friend. Both women understandably saw it as an act of betrayal. How could the two men have thought they would see it as anything else?
It's extraordinary and naive, Thorne agrees. They try to excuse themselves. We were just bumbling boys. They were men in their thirties. It's very easy for men to play this card. Well, we didn't know what we were doing. At some point, you have to take responsibility. In the years after the band split up, and particularly after the tragically early death of McLennan at just 48 of a heart attack, the story of the go-betweens has been increasingly retold as the story of the two men. That's certainly how Foster framed it in the title of his memoir, Grant and I. And so, one of the reasons Thorne wanted to write My Rock and Roll Friend, she says, was the fear that Morrison was in danger of being left out of the story. This is the crux of things. This idea of erasure, it repeats and repeats in the music industry. It's why someone like Bjork has to time and again assert her own agency when she makes music, why she has to remind people that she is responsible for it, not her male collaborators. It's endless, Thorne agrees, and it becomes exhausting, and so I think sometimes women fall by the wayside because they get defeated by it and also start to believe their own press. You start to believe, maybe I wasn't that important. My rock and roll friend is an act of reclamation then. I think that it's happening more and more now. More and more women are starting to write their books, from Viv Albertine to Chrissy Hind. It does feel to me some of these stories that had slipped out of our attention. When you look back at punk, it was always the Sex Pistols and the Clash. Yeah, but hang on, I was there. X-ray specs and the slits were as important, but those stories are now being told. If nothing else, my rock and roll friend serves as a reminder that without Morrison, the story of the go-betweens would be a lot less interesting. Because for all her complexity and vulnerabilities, what emerges from the pages of Thorne's book is just how much fun Morrison was and is. As well as there being anger in there, I did want there to be joy, Thorne admits. As I say at one point, the sheer buzz of being in her company. I want that to come through the book as well, that you're just thinking, my God, she's a hoot. She is, and she's unpredictable, and she's contradictory, and you don't know what she'll say next. All that about her is kind of brilliant. She's not a neatly packaged entity. What does that make her? Human, I guess, and fun to be with, in person and on the page. My Rock and Roll Friend by Tracy Thorne is published by Canongate, priced £16.99. And that was from The Herald, Arts and Entertainment section. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.